Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Scott Stevens. He is a noted journalist on alcoholism, the founding influencer of the world's largest medical portal, healthtap.com, and an award-winning author of four books. Scott was named chair of the 2018 International Conference on Addiction Therapy and Clinical Reports in Paris, France, and chair of the 2018 International Conference on Dual Diagnosis in Melbourne, Australia. He is also on the organizing committee for the 2019 Addiction Therapy Conference to be held in Barcelona, Spain. Scott and I will be having a conversation about his life's journey and his latest book titled, Look What Dragged the Cat In, The Rise of an Opioid Crisis in America. Good morning, Scott. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Johnny, thank you for having me on the program. I'm doing great. Wonderful. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. Look What Dragged the Cat In. It's a compelling read. It is extremely informative. The statistics are disturbing, but essential for all of us to understand the reach and complexity of the situation. So thank you for writing the book, and congratulations on its release. Thank you. It, uh, it came out in August last year, uh, generated a lot of interest both in the academic world and in the recovery world. So it's, it's always uh, a great privilege to have anybody read my books, but to get the kind of feedback that I've had on this and the four others is, is just astounding and uh, it warms my heart. Fantastic. Let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Sure. Um, I'm a Midwestern guy. I grew up in Burlington, Wisconsin, which is where I live today. My my kids live with their mother nearby. I get to see them very often, as often as I can. But when I uh, I grew up here, um, you know, I might be one of the one of the few people walking the planet who can honestly say I've had no childhood traumas. Everything mm-hmm. uh, it was a it's a great small town life here and uh, a great upbringing by my mother and a lot of very close friends and family that uh, remain close to this day even though i've lived uh, across the us in my both my journalistic career and my marketing career i went to school um, college both of my degrees are in journalism which i guess basically means i've taken math for idiots twice but i <laughs> parlayed it into a, a journalism career, which was my passion. And at some point in my uh, my early marriage, my wife said, mm-hmm. how about getting a real job? Because I was <laughs> gone an awful lot. So I said, you know what, you, you do have a point there. And while I was living my dream job, uh, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was time for a change in, in light of you know, what's best for my, my life station at that point, what's good for my family. So I switched to marketing and spent 17 years working in the financial services industry, which was uh, very rewarding, at the same time very mm-hmm. challenging for me. Uh, my son 
Matthew was born in 2000, my daughter Kennedy. Uh, she's She was born in 2004. That makes her going on 15 or going mm-hmm. on 20, depending on her day. But she's awesome. She's got me wrapped around her little finger, which is uh, <laughs> pretty much right where I belong. Now, it, in the middle of all this, uh, you know, I, I've had some tremendous successes in my life by many measures of success. I've I, uh, made a small fortune in the financial services industry, had all the toys, a great house. And I, I also had a relationship with alcohol, which at one point in my life, I could have taken it or left it. But as uh, as my story evolved, I guess I'm a late bloomer in my mm. early 30s, alcohol turned on me. Alcohol was no longer my friend, and I realized that I was alcoholic. Uh, but it, it and it could have all stopped right then had I managed my disease the right way, and the right way being to stop drinking. This mm-hmm. is a disease that's medically very easy easy to cure, and you just stop putting alcohol in your body. But it's way way more difficult than that. And <laughs> of course, it's the only disease that convinces you you don't have it. So I I I knew I had it, but I I thought I could outsmart it. So my mm-hmm. solution was to become a maintenance drinker, and it was off to the races. And very soon after that, I was drinking at least two liters of Jack Daniels every day and drank my way out of a great marriage, drank my way into a second marriage, and uh, very quickly drank my way out of that one. We were <laughs> married sixty. We were married six months, and the divorce took fourteen months. So it was, it, it was a mess, and it was a mm-hmm. mess because I did not, um, I did not respect the drug alcohol, and I mm-hmm. did not have the, the lucidity to see the carnage around me that it was mm-hmm. all alcohol related. Um, but in losing and in. in losing my second marriage, I also lost my designated driver and I got behind the wheel and I was arrested four times in six weeks for drinking and driving. Mm -hmm. And I nearly died twice, once from drinking too much and once from alcohol withdrawal. And then, you know, light bulbs started going on for me that, okay, um, I was almost dead. I am a felon. I just lost a, a dream career. Uh, what am I going to do? And why Why can't a reasonably intelligent guy just get it? And I, I just couldn't get it. And I began researching in 2007 when I um, started my, my efforts with alcohologist.com, which is my mm-hmm. website. And beginning researching the drug alcohol, the effects of uh, the disease of alcoholism, which I had fits and starts in trying to start my sobriety, and uh, looking at also the health impact of moderate alcohol use, not just the way I used to drink, but the way that uh, you know we've been conned into thinking is a mm. responsible or healthy way. So uh, that brings you up until the current. I, I put out put out five books. The most recent one is the one we're talking about today, which is Look What Dragged the Cat In, The Rise mm-hmm. of the Opioid Crisis. Uh, four prior to that, including uh, the first one being uh, What the Early Worm Gets. You can see that each of these is a play on words. And uh, <laughs> uh, that, that book deals with the difference between treatment and mistreatment. 
my second book was Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud, and that talks about relapse and the symptoms of sobriety. My third book was Adding Fire to the Fuel. That talks about the public stigma of the disease of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And uh, my fourth book is called I Can't See the Forest with All These Damn Trees in the Way. And that just talks about <laughs> America's love affair with a, with a toxin and known carcinogen. Yeah. That uh, we, If we knew what it's doing to us, we wouldn't knowingly put this in our bodies. But we do every day. And here, and here we are. I'm on I'm on Johnny Tan's show, which is an honor. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing. One of the things I do want to ask you is that you mentioned alcohol being a disease, and a lot of people that claim that, and I'm not saying it's not. Just from a perspective of curiosity, was there drinking when you were growing up in your family? Yes, and uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in Wisconsin, so there's drinking everywhere, one of the the states with the highest per capita alcohol consumption. Um, Mm -hmm. That being said, that doesn't mean everybody drinks. It just means we drink a lot when we do. And my family was no exception. um, In hindsight, I have uh, a father who was alcoholic, and I didn't know it until Mm -hmm. the the year after he died and talking to my Mm -hmm. mom, because I never saw him drink other than a a beer or two after work. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't see his hard drinking after the kids went to bed. Right. Um, I do. I do have an uncle who is alcoholic as well. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. alcoholism in my family. But drinking in general, uh, every family gathering, every church mm-hmm. gathering, all, all the celebrations and rites and rituals uh, that in which I grew up, they all involved alcohol. And that, mm-hmm. that's not uncommon, uh, really. I mean, yeah, it, it's very prevalent in Wisconsin. But anywhere you look in the U.S., this is a, mm-hmm. it's considered a rite of passage. It's considered mm-hmm. an adult thing to do, to, to relax and unwind. And this part of our culture is what uh, gets us into uh, or what brought me into the book that I recently wrote about the opioid crisis. There's a straight mm-hmm. line from where we are as a country with alcohol and definitely a straight line between my exposure to alcohol as a young kid at family events to my acceptance of using this drug in my adulthood. Coming back to the things that you have shared, for example, you were in the financial industry and you were at one time with the Blue Angels. Yeah, I had an opportunity to fly with them as a as a reporter. Yeah. I wasn't an actual pilot, right. but yeah, I've had some great experiences. And Johnny, I might be one of the few people on the planet who can say he's lived his dream job twice because I started my career as a journalist and I'm back doing what I love today, and that's uh, writing and, and producing uh, articles that uh, people read and, and find interesting. So perfect, uh, perfect opportunity to live the dream job twice. Very, very interesting. Let's go back to, you talked about rites of passage just now. And yeah. what's interesting about it is that, again, now this is part of a generational issue in some ways. Do you feel like drinking was, I need to be with the guys. This is part of mm-hmm. the acceptance, the fear of not being accepted if I don't do it with the guys. Uh, that that goes right back to the very first drink that I had at age 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. here I'm transitioning into high school, and you, you think that the the cool high school thing to do. Hey, I'm not a not a puny eighth grader anymore. I'm a high schooler. I'm, 
uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna drink and you know these uh, these couple of friends of mine there were three of us and a six pack of beer and I know it sounds like a bad Wisconsin joke but it's that was just that was how it all started and you know yeah. had I known then what I know now about how my body handles alcohol I would have known right then that I had uh, the the pre the the tendency for alcoholism because when they drank their two beers they were acting all squirrely and I'm standing there thinking why don't I feel like they look and that mm-hmm. would that would have been a clue that my body, body handles alcohol differently but nobody thinks like that when they're 14 so you know that, right. was, that was me getting together with the guys and sharing a moment sharing our, our rite of passage and throughout right. high school you know you I, I drank occasionally we went out to bonfires which are a big big deal here in rural Wisconsin mm-hmm. uh, when I was in college of course college parties and I I put myself through college so I didn't have a whole lot of time or money for that but occasionally you know I'd, I'd go out with my friends and it always involved going to a house party and again this, this is one of those moments Johnny where had I known then what I know now I was always the last guy right. standing at the end of the night next to the empty keg <laughs> saying hey we get another and these little little signs that yeah. you know, I and of course you don't think like that when you're in college either. But there sure. I was, and another another indication that uh, my tolerance was way different than um, than a so-called normal person. That I I had the tendency for uh, this to get out of hand, and it, it eventually did much much later. But and it was you're mm-hmm. you're right. It was uh, one of those things as uh, as part of uh, acceptance with my friends. That's what that's what we did. That's how we roll, and this is what we're gonna do mm-hmm. on a on a Friday night or in college on a Thursday night. That was our camaraderie. Right, right. Well, coming back to what you do professionally. Mm-hmm. What is it about journalism that fascinates you? Uh, well, when I, I I'm a voracious reader, I, I read everything that I can get my hands onto. And when I was uh, as a as a journalist the first time around, I was a TV journalist, and boy, we only got a couple of minutes to get this story on air, so I had to boil down like days of reading into, okay, what what are the facts here and how can we portray this in two minutes? To have that uh, that ability, that, uh, that desire to read and to boil things down into plain English in, in a matter of minutes is is a real challenge that I didn't I enjoyed. I, I credit my seventh grade teacher Norma Roanhouse for pushing me in the direction of going toward a writing career because uh, she really instilled in me the the values of good grammar and and punctuation and you know that my the creative side of my writing would mm-hmm. would blossom, mm-hmm. blossom someday but a journalism career would be a good fit and I so I got to do that and then today you know it interspersed in all of this I was uh, as a mutual fund executive I was involved mm-hmm. with retirement plans now, retirement plans involve 14,000 pages of IRS code. So kind of by default, I was that guy because nobody else wanted to read that junk. <laughs> so, so I and my role, again, was to distill that down into plain English, what's going to make sense for a retirement investor at age 20, mm-hmm. 30, 40, 50, et cetera. So you know, that, 
that research component definitely served me very well in creating each of these five books because uh, as, as you read in Look What Dragged the Cat In, there's a, there's mm-hmm. a very, very uh, deep research root in all of this, but I try to make, right. br- try to bring it back to uh, get rid of the jargon and the doctor speak and, and talk in terms that people can understand. And that is the most rewarding part of it. And that's why I, I love doing what I do. And um, I, I also created a side business with my partner, Becky Gallagher, and which I'm able to write uh, on a daily basis as part of a social media content business. So mm-hmm. keeping that, that passion for writing alive is, is very much in the fabric of who I am. Very, very interesting. What was the pivotal experience that changes your entire trajectory in life and sort of really puts you in this position of being an author strictly focusing on topics about addiction? My own recovery. This is, mm-hmm. uh, I, it's, it's a service I give back to the, to the people who help, kept, help keep me from dying or from succumbing mm-hmm. to this disease because this disease is chronic and progressive and fatal, and I, I was nearly a statistic. I, I'm not uh, – I'm a survivor, and I am not going to be quiet about that. I'm going to share what worked with me but also shed some light onto some of the things that uh, – that, you know, hey, if I didn't know these things, and I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, there's a lot of people who didn't know these things about the drug alcohol. So the pivotal experience for me in getting back to journalism was my own trials and tribulations with with my addiction and the things that I went through, the things I witnessed, and definitely the things that I researched. It It helped me personally recover to focus on these things because I have a thirst for knowledge that's unquenchable. I wanted to know what the heck is wrong with me, but I also wanted to share that information with with uh, people who are willing to give it a read. Did you ever think that what started out as something of a conscious decision that maybe the testosterone driven over a period of time, the body adjusted and it became a disease? Uh, yes, there there is absolutely a genetic component to this. Where uh, mm-hmm. thank God for the Human Genome Project, it was it's mind-boggling, right. fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. But that indicated that uh, there are flaws in the chromosomes four Q and eleven that lead mm-hmm. to a a tendency for alcoholism. But no alcoholic ever became alcoholic without taking the first drink. So mm-hmm. there is a genetic component, but there's also an environmental component that, it, uh, you know, and, and here's the thing about the genetic component. You can be born with that gene package, which I may or right. may not have. I mean, we didn't have 23 and me back when I was a kid, but you, know, there, you might be born with that, but you can drink your way into it. This is, this is a toxin that can change your DNA. So as mm-hmm. you drink and drink more of it, you're exposing your body to a toxin that is going to alter your genetic makeup in addition to uh, you know, increase your tolerance, et cetera. So it's a mystery. Um, it's a mystery, and it's not a mystery. It's no mystery that uh, that I tried alcohol. I don't know if I was born with that gene package or drank my way into it. Uh, frankly, both are irrelevant at this point in my career because I choose to live mm-hmm. an alcohol-free 
you are an experiential speaker and you're so passionate about what you're doing. And so if it's a disease, I'm not saying that necessarily we can cure it, but we certainly contain it. If it's not a disease, then you flip back, if that makes sense. Well, this disease is not dissimilar to other chronic progressive fatal diseases. Take, for example, (laughs) cancer. I mean, you can always, uh, you can have your cancer in remission, and there are times where the cancer comes back. Disease-wise, alcoholism is not unlike diabetes, and diabetes has a very, very high relapse rate, and really all you have to do is watch your diet and take some pills. Uh, Comparatively to alcoholism, you have to change your mind. You have to learn uh, new places, new people, new things. There's a lot of other moving parts to treating the disease of alcoholism, and you're right, there isn't a cure but there, there is a lot of treatment available. But as, as the disease uh, description goes, it, it's like cancer and diabetes in the regard that it is a relapsing disease and I can go back. Mm-hmm. In fact, with this disease being progressive, I'm not going back and where I left off. I'm going to at a stage of my disease where I would have been had I never stopped drinking, which if I was drinking two Mm -hmm. liters of Jack Daniels a day to get me where I needed to get, uh, I Mm -hmm. I could only imagine the very, very quick road to death I would be on if I Mm -hmm. decided to go back to that. And that's one of those things that keeps you sober, too, thinking about the progressive nature of this disease. So true. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio, our podcast available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Broadcasting, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Scott Stevens. He's a noted journalist on alcoholism, the founding influencer of the world's largest medical portal, healthpap.com, and an award-winning author of four books. Scott was named chair of the 2018 International Conference on Addiction Therapy and Clinical Reports in Paris, France, and Chair of the 2018 International Conference on Dual Diagnosis in Melbourne, Australia. He is also on the organizing committee for the 2019 Addiction Therapy Conference to be held in Barcelona, Spain. Scott and I are having a conversation about his life's journey and his latest book titled, Look, What Dragged the Cat In? The Rise of an Opioid Crisis in America. Scott, why did you decide to author Look What Dragged the Cat In? In, in our news cycle, which, which has been percolating with this uh, talk about a, a talk of an opioid crisis, and uh, I'll tell you, it's as real and bigger than just the news cycle would, would bear witness to. But with yeah. all of this, there have been solution after solution proposed, and every one of those is focused on cleaning up what the cat dragged in. And I, I had a gut feeling that we're not going back far enough. We're not looking at what dragged the cat in. How did we get to this mm-hmm. point? We can spend a lot of money trying to treat people after they've been exposed to opioids. We can, tr- we can spend a tremendous amount of legislative time and pass any number of bills regulating this drug. However, how did we get to this point? And 
that was the the question that I wanted to research deeper and deeper. And as I stumbled into this, uh, I looked at, okay, here we are today in an opioid crisis that kills 49 to 59,000 people every single year. Most of them are, are young people, tragedies that we're losing people at such an early age. But look at where we were uh, a decade and a half ago. We were in another drug crisis. It was methamphetamine. Look at the decade before mm-hmm. that. It was a cocaine crisis. So we keep recurring into these cycle of crises. How do we get there and how do we stop this? How do we put uh, put the floodgates back into place to stop entering? Because you know what? If we do all this legislative stuff and clean up all this mess that the cat dragged in, we're still going to have another crisis. So how do we how do we halt this in its tracks? And then I looked at America's relationship with alcohol, and every single one of these crises is alcohol related. When you look at the opioid crisis in specific, 63% of opioid users had alcohol as their first drug of choice. That was their first drug used. So in the other other, uh, 37%, where do we learn how to self-prescribe? We learn to self-prescribe through alcohol and alcohol exposure at a very, very early age. We see mom and dad come home from work, I'm stressed out, and alcoholics and non-alcoholics alike drink for the same reason, and that's to relieve stress. So mm-hmm. witnessing that, seeing the beer ads where you, you never see just a single beer, you always see multiple beers in there, we're, we're, <laughs> we're being groomed to take drugs and to self-prescribe. So that is the straight line between alcohol and the opioid crisis we're involved in today and every crisis that came before that. That's true. Very, very true. My take on it in terms of the opioid crisis may have been, and I say this respectfully, rural America. It's not the main city's problem. And then somewhere along the line, and it's been brewing in the back roads for a very Mm -hmm. long time, and it finally spilled over to the big cities, and now it became a crisis because people are looking at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It's come down to Main Street, which is why you're right, Mm -hmm. why people are, are looking at it. The the heroin trade is as, as old as the written language, and uh, you know, that goes back to the opium road and back around the, the turn of the millennium, uh, two millennium ago. But where we look at today, yes, there it does have its roots in rural America in that uh, we have, uh, I, I'd say it's an enforcement issue where mm-hmm. dope, Unscrupulous dope dealers took advantage of a, a rural policing system that wasn't prepared for the onslaught that they were going to bring with a very mm-hmm. extremely addictive drug. Um, but the, your your main routes for the distribution of heroin in the United States remain the same as they've always been. The, the delivery mm-hmm. method is different. Part of our problem today with opiates, in fact, the majority of our problem with opiate overdoses involve fentanyl. And 
Where was that coming into the United States from China? The weakest part in our borders isn't a wall along Mexico. The weakest part in our borders was the United States Postal Service. China was right. shipping this fentanyl into the United States via, via the very route that we least we suspected. So, um, and and from there it reaches out from the major metropolitan areas, whether it's uh, New York, Chicago, L.A., et cetera, mm-hmm. to um, unscrupulous drug dealers improve, imp- increasing their profits to uh, cut their heroin with cheaper, more accessible fentanyl and giving their users a a more addictive product and b a more lethal product. Mm-hmm. So that's true. To, to your point, it, it's it's rural America, it's big city, it, it's everywhere these days. But the the heart wrenching stories are you know right here in the in the breadbasket of America, where you know we you see, you have a town of ten thousand, and you have yeah. four four opioid related deaths in a single year. You're like, oh my God, what is going on with this here in our sleepy right. little town? That's the thing, though. I mean, I'm glad as a journalist you took at great length, perhaps driven by your passion to get the information out. I remember years ago when I first got to the United States when I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is obviously a bigger town or city from that perspective. But my American foster family lives in Papa Bluff, Missouri, population 17,000 at the time. And Mm -hmm. I remember when I was talking to one of my brothers who happened to be a part-time sheriff's deputy, they have calls all the time about a drugs-related issue and so forth. And he was explaining to me that, Johnny, don't be full. We're talking about New York City or L.A. and so forth, or New Orleans, for that matter, right? Mm -hmm. We have a drug problem. We have the same drug problem in Papa Bluff as we do in New Orleans. The only difference is that the TV people are not here (laughs) (laughs) to video it every day. No one's there to write about it. Then the flip side of it also, you were talking about taking advantage of, and this comes back to my next question, because your book covers thoroughly in terms of like, we start the blaming game now. We want to blame the doctors, the government, the pharmaceutical companies. And I'm sure everybody needs to take their chip up on this, no question about it, because it's got to start somewhere. But having said that, I find that the rural America are a little bit more trusting. They trust their doctor. So it's a perfect brewing pot of gumbo that's mm-hmm. cooking itself to perfection. Because when I go and see my doctor, everybody's got pain problems. <laughs> exactly. And now what something seemingly innocent got out of hand, basically, in a nutshell, and just spreads mm-hmm. like wildfires. And so I'm very thankful, certainly, and I know there are a whole lot of people that are very thankful for people like you to come in and kind of, in a way, open our eyes to it. In the end, it is about each individual has their own take on what's right, what's wrong. But it's people like you that sort of like really put it into the right perspective. So I want to commend you on that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you know, when I look at the the culpability in this this blame game that we we talk mm-hmm. about um yeah we we do trust our doctors and especially here in in rural america and you know these are our family docs this is in my in my own personal experience the the doctor who delivered me was my doctor until i went off to college i mean that that was a mm-hmm. lot of trust that i placed in his hand is he always going to know everything about every disease and every pill no um, but I, I gave him that trust to at least do right by by my health. 
And where we mm-hmm. run into to problems with that is where do they get their information? Well, they get it from the drug companies. Do, do I think doctors are 100% um, off the hook on this? Of course not. There, there are some sketchy doctors yeah. out there who overprescribe, certainly. They're, right. they're, they're not the majority. And to, to bash the entire medical industry, I think, is really uh, unfair, um, but also it's misdirected. Uh, there, there's a lot of pain involved with an overdose death, and we, we want somebody's feet held to the fire. But I think this is the wrong crew. This is the wrong group. Uh, is it the pharmaceutical companies? Well, they're not, they're not clean on this one. Their marketing mm-hmm. tactics were sketchy to begin with, and they've been fined and right. sanctioned for that as well. But what is a pharmaceutical company doing but exactly what we told them to do? We said we have a problem with chronic pain. Give us something for it. And that's what they did right. with OxyContin. They, the Purdue reps, uh, Purdue Pharma being the the uh, company, the maker of OxyContin, their reps um, may, uh, well, actually the, the court case said definitively they misrepresented their product with a low incidence of addiction, which was, you know, we're talking about opiates here. These are, <laughs> right. regardless of what kind you're delivering, they got a high level of, of addictive qualities. But, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies, I'm not defending them, but I, I am saying that we have to we have to go back further. The pharmaceutical companies right. delivered something that, frankly, got way out of hand and then led us into an explosion of the heroin trade and the fentanyl trade. So we need to look further back. Who taught us to self-prescribe? Um, and you know, what was our what was our first drug of choice here? We at some point, mm-hmm. you know, people people don't take drugs to feel good. People take drugs to feel less bad. So uh, right. you know, when you look at chronic pain, that's one reason. But the chronic pain doesn't necessarily mean uh, a spinal injury or a, a knee surgery. Chronic pain can also come from our life experiences, whether it's a childhood trauma or having witnessed something, you know, whether it's uh, war-related or a tragedy or a natural disaster. You know, Those kind of traumas... Uh, increase stress and the, we've you know like i said mm-hmm. people take the drug alcohol alcoholics and non-alcoholics alike to relieve stress so if the response to stress is if your knee-jerk reaction is to go toward alcohol and you can't get where you want to get with the drug alcohol you're going to up your game you are uh, and there we get into the problem of, okay, well, I couldn't get there with one beer. Maybe six will do it. And then six ain't doing it. What else you know, What else do I have at my disposal? I'm going to go raid grandma's uh, or the parents' medicine chest. Hey, these pills mm-hmm. are are uh, supposed to block pain and have a general calming antidepressant effect. That's kind of a broad brush approach to a definition of opioids, but that's what they do. And hey, I got pain. It, pain is in my head or my heart or my or my physical joints. Either way, I'm going to relieve that pain and I'm going to self-prescribe. So true. In what way is the government contributing to the crisis? Uh, follow the money. <laughs> Where you, know, you look at the influence of lobbying money. Um, in Washington, D.C., and in our state capitals, the 
alcohol industry is one of the most powerful lobbies in this country. We have a, a crazy relationship with alcohol industry, alcohol business in the United States because we pro, we had prohibition. And by the way, I'm not in favor of that. I think it's it's a is a dumb idea because when you want alcohol, you will get prohibition proved that. Uh, the current right. drug situation proves that that you can mm-hmm. you can outlaw it, you can ban it all you want, but where the alcohol industry has such sway in the United States Congress and in each of our state houses across the country mm-hmm. is that we don't have any filter on the amount of advertising because the alcohol industry does not want that kind of oversight and their mm-hmm. dollars speak their dollars speak loudly. We do not have any filter on the availability of this drug in that uh, in some municipalities we do limit the hours or um, places, a number of establishments where it's available. But by and large, the, the legislative process ignores things that would be of detriment to one of their biggest contributors. But you know that when we talk about beer and alcohol, I mean, of course, many countries, especially here, that's like drinking water. So having said that, the interesting part about it, and I know you mentioned briefly in the books about countries that forbid drinking, for example, or religion that forbid drinking. But in the end, shouldn't the public take some ownership of the crisis as well? Absolutely. The the amounts we drink and when and where we drink them, uh, it, it's not my business um, it's everybody's business, mm-hmm. okay? Where if mm-hmm. we're teaching our kids to drink at an early age, we are teaching them drug use. And so we need to change a dialogue here. We don't necessarily ban the substance. We, we talk about this substance as a drug with very serious long-term health effects beyond the disease of addiction, beyond the trauma of car wrecks, uh, you know, of the 90,000 alcohol-related deaths in the United States every year, only about 10,000 of them are from behind-the-wheel accidents. So we're, our alcohol problem, that other 80,000 deaths, comes from things like cancer. We don't talk about alcohol being a carcinogen. We need to change the dialogue. Instead of saying, mm-hmm. oh, you're, you're 14, you can try your first sip of beer, uh, that that that's as absurd as saying here you're 14 why don't you try your first line of coke because mm-hmm. it, drug-wise this one is even more devastating to the long-term brain development and long-term health consequences than that drug and I, i'm not advocating cocaine by any stretch of the imagination but right, you, you right, get the right. point here where our dialogue right here at the kitchen table does have uh has has effect through our community and throughout our country where we need to change the dialogue from what this drug does for us to what it's actually doing to us and it is costing our economy 250 billion dollars a year it is riving apart families uh Day by day, you hear of tragedies that were, uh, frankly, alcohol-related, abuse, neglect. Uh, there, there, there are a number of social ills that you can tie to this drug. But when it gets right down to it, that family dialogue, that that community dialogue, needs to change in order for us to avoid 
a crisis like an opioid crisis further down the road. And, and Johnny, we're already into our next crisis of meth as a result. Uh, it's kind of a shadow crisis right. to what's going on with the opioids. So, you know, to to reduce this cycle immediately and long or immediately and long term, we need to change the dialogue on this drug. Mm-hmm. A- advertising is going to be a big, big part of it. And uh Six years ago, I wrote that by the end of this decade, we're going to see a sharp curtailing in the amount of advertising that that alcohol gets away with. And I still hold true to that by the end of this decade, which is not that far away. We are going to see the elimination of alcohol ads from television and anywhere that kids can be exposed to them. And that is that's our problem with alcohol advertising today is that. You know, mm-hmm. it's a self-regulated, and the alcohol industry has every intent to sell to the next generation of drinkers because they already got the current set. So true. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Scott Stevens. He is a noted journalist on alcoholism, the founding influencer of the world's largest medical portal, healthtap.com, and an award-winning author of four books. Scott was named chair of the 2018 International Conference on Addiction Therapy and Clinical Report in Paris, France, and chair of the 2018 International Conference on Dual Diagnosis in Melbourne, Australia. He is also on the organizing committee for the 2019 Addiction Therapy Conference to be held in Barcelona, Spain. Scott and I are having a conversation about his life's journey and his latest book titled, Look, What Dragged the Cat In? The Rise of an Opioid Crisis in America. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Scott, how do people know they have a drinking problem? Uh, The first sign is always going to be if somebody has the courage to say, I'm concerned about your drinking, because like I said, this is this is a disease that convinces you, you don't have it. But if somebody has the courage and the love to tell you something so personal and something uh, so judgmental, boy, take it seriously. You have to take that <laughs> seriously because it, it's, not, it's not an easy discussion for them to arrive at and usually that is going to be the first sign and the most objective sign you're going to get and yes you can look at the you you can chart how much you're drinking and and all sorts of uh chronological things on um you know journaling and and keeping track of yourself but ultimately you've got to make that decision and when the word comes from somebody else who cares about you enough to say something you have to take that seriously that's going to be the first sign that most people get and unfortunately it doesn't come a lot of times because we're afraid to have that discussion we're afraid to have that mm-hmm. dialogue about something you know that just seemingly is so broadly accepted in the United States and many parts of the world it's something that Hey, if I'm going to tell you that I'm concerned about your drinking, uh, what's what's that say about me? I'm not exactly a teetotaler, so I mean, you know, the the judgment, the fear of of mm-hmm. having that conversation is what prevents a lot of people from ever having it. But if somebody does have it with you, oh, wide open ears, please, because that is, that is going to save your life. Wonderful. 
One of the things that I really like about your book, your book talk about the fetal alcohol syndrome so that couples can understand what that's all about and also about teen risk. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about what do parents need to look for to make sure their loved ones are not addicted to an opioid? Well, there there are many signs. I'll tell you the the first sign and the one that's always the last to go is lying. Uh, if a person, <laughs> what we do is we protect our supply. As a person who yeah. is addicted, we we psychologically view that as a life need. I can't live without it. So this person is threatening or would take it from me if they knew. So I'm going to lie. I'm going to hide it, and you know I. As a as a former drinker myself, uh, guilty as charged. Yep, um, because I wanted to protect that supply. I did not want to stop drinking. Um, so if if anybody asks um, asks me, I'd say I don't. I only had two. Well, yeah, two what? Two liters? Two cans? What was it? You know the <laughs> the the in the conscious act of lying about your consumption or hiding it that's going to be a first sign no matter what the drug is Uh, an addiction is anything you have to hide and if you're hiding it then it's an addiction so and that's a that's a pretty good tell right there johnny is if if somebody Mm -hmm. is is being dishonest about the level they're consuming or completely concealing it from whether it's a spouse or uh, not even employers know. I mean, employers can look at mm-hmm. performance, and you know, your employer is in a precarious position from you know the employment law standpoint. But they can know. Um, they they can usually be on the front line because if I'm spending eight hours a day at the office and only you know four conscious hours at home, who's right. going to see me more? Uh, right. they're, they're definitely they're definitely in a tougher spot to do anything about it, but less so today because you know you, you can you can have the opportunity to refer an employee to an employee assistance program, for example, an EAP, mm-hmm. where they can get help from somebody who's better qualified to say to assess the situation and to deliver mm-hmm. that help rather than uh, Joan from HR department. You know, there's, there's right. ways, to, ways to approach it because this is a productivity issue. When it cuts down to mm-hmm. it, that $250 billion I told you about, $170 billion a year right. is in lost productivity. And we all pay for mm-hmm. that. I mean, whether we're going to Walmart right. to buy a TV or whether we're going to out for dinner, you know, the, the prices mm-hmm. that we pay day to day for any item that we we buy in our commerce system includes that lost productivity. So what everybody drinks uh, from a from an employer standpoint is a big deal because it, it's mm-hmm. a, it's about competitiveness and it's a tough spot for an employer to be in certainly. But uh, again, the the conversation goes beyond the the dollars and cents to that employer. To do you care about the people that you work with? And do you want them to be better, not just better from a, a bottom line standpoint for your company, but better, live a longer, happier life? Mm-hmm. So true. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading Look What Dragged the Cat In? 
Oh, there, there, there's so many parts of that book that uh, that I really enjoyed writing and researching. But really, what it gets down to is, don't believe everything that you see on TV. Because uh, a, I used to be in the business. I, I know the kind of filters that are on it. Okay, and is a news operation going to? Uh, intentionally tick off the alcohol industry that is keeping their network afloat by advertising? Probably not. And I've been personally been in situations like that as a reporter. But um, mm-hmm. on a larger scale, where we hear about the crisis of of drugs or alcohol or drugs and alcohol, to look at uh, look at the bigger picture. They've got two minutes to tell you a, a lifetime of stories, and you're not going to get the entire picture. So don't believe everything that you, you see and hear on, on the network news or the local news about, about a crisis, because it, it does involve more than doctors and pharmaceutical companies. It involves a cultural appetite that is much deeper than what we see in a death toll every year and the personal mm-hmm. tragedies that they, they portray. That's true. But then it's a reflection on us. We're looking in the mirror at ourselves. And Nobody likes to walk. do that, do they? Yeah, it's, yeah. It, <laughs> it's, a pain, it's a painful part of self-examination. And, you know, yeah. it, it, but as, as I point out in this book and all four before that, it, it's part of the dialogue that uh, we can have with ourselves, but also the part of the dialogue within our families and with our communities mm-hmm. to say, is this, is drug use something that I want to condone? Is this something that uh, we accept and, and permit and just let it go because it seems harmless on the surface? Or do we look at the bigger picture and look at all the other harms associated with it, be they economic or social or health-wise? Right. Well, everything is personally driven. It's not from the outside in. It's from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and you know if it if it takes looking at your own relationship with alcohol first, I, I encourage. Uh, you know, I, I do speak a lot at the at the opposite end of the spectrum where I'm at treatment centers or treatment conferences talking about, you know, staying sober and living sober in a world that seems to embrace drug use, but also on the front end, you know, whether it's your, your first drink or you're going out to have dinner with friends and, you know, which, which wine are we ordering? Why, why isn't the question, do we need wine tonight? And what, why, why is wine going to improve our dinner? And, you know, so Mm -hmm. that, more thorough self-examination needs to take place as to why we're drinking and uh, then turn it into a more global discussion on what is this doing to me or to us rather than what we think it's doing mm-hmm. for us. So true. Where can someone go to get more information about you, your books, and keep up with your latest happenings? Oh, thanks, Johnny. My website is alcohologist.com. That's alcohol. O-G-I-S-T dot com. I've been working that uh, that website and the associated social media that go with it, and I've got a DVD series on there as well as a lot of videos, probably over four, oh, 140 by now. But um, all that stuff, the, the hub of my business is at alcohologist.com. All the books mm-hmm. are available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere you choose to buy your books. Even a brick-and-mortar bookstore down the street will have access to it through uh, their ordering, um, whether if they don't have it on the shelves. And um, 
alcohologist.com will give you all the ordering information like the numbers for the books each of them is available in hardcover uh, soon look what dragged the cat in will be available in softcover and uh, ebook as well wonderful do you have any advice for people that just realize they have a problem with opioid there's no shame in it uh, you know, this is a this is a very addictive drug, whether we're talking about alcohol or opioids, and you're stuck. Nobody gets unstuck by themselves. Uh, you you can't solve your problems with the same mind that created them. That was Einstein, I think. Um, you know, the, there's no shame in saying that. Okay, I've got a problem. And no shame in getting help for it, because there is help available, whether it's treatment centers or self-help groups. Um, definitely detox, you know, something more formal and medical like that, because it is a disease. But accepting the fact that, okay, I this this has me. There's no shame in that. And to to think that anybody's going to look down their nose at you because you're struggling with something, isn't the isn't the way any of us were brought up. Let's get help and fix this. I agree with that. I think the culture has changed. I think gone on the old, again, generational thing, well, you're not man enough to hold your liquor or you're not man enough to do this or whatever. Now it's a different environment. It's much easier. Yeah. It's it's easier. There's more access to treatment. I'm not saying we've solved the uh, the treatment availability issue. It's still a challenge for some areas of the country, but help is available and and help is encouraged. We're we're in a society like you said. Times have changed. This isn't about okay, you're not man enough or you can't handle this on your own. Mm -hmm. You don't have the willpower. Mm -hmm. None of this is an issue of willpower when it comes to the disease of addiction. Just like if you were, if you had a stomach that was growling right now, you can't will your stomach full. Well, you can't (laughs) will yourself not to have this problem either. Right. Right. So true. Well, what's next for you? I am going to do a couple of conferences, a couple of, uh, academic conferences this summer over in Europe. Again, I'll be in Paris and in Rome and in Barcelona. And uh, so far, I'm also working with uh, with the gorgeous woman in my life. Uh, she's also a high school counselor. And there's a lot of value in what I've put in five books that needs to be brought down to that level and even younger. And that's something I talk about in every or Look What Dragged the Cat In is we need to start earlier and more uh, in their language on this dialogue of mm-hmm. drugs. So true. How is your relationship with your two kids in terms of when this whole thing sort of maybe self-imploded? Uh, well, you know, uh, my kids were, were young. They still are. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I wasn't there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I missed part of their growing up because of my relationship with alcohol. I can pledge to them that it's never going to happen again, but they know it. They know in my mm-hmm. eyes, they know in the in the sobriety that I've had, in the success that I had, that I'm not going to do that to them again. And I have mm-hmm. their respect 
which I believe I always had, and I have their love, which I know was unconditional as my children, but I, I've earned it, and they, they let mm-hmm. me know it. We're, we're, good, uh, we're good at parenting, but we're also good friends as well, and that they know they can come to me uh, based on my struggles with anything that they're struggling with and know that they're going to get airtight, rock-solid advice, or at least they're right. going to get my very, very best effort. Well, in the end, it's all about in your actions. That's it. Precisely. And yes. so if you are a man of your actions, of your words, then everything works out the way it ought to be. So that's fantastic. As we close the show, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? A uh, recipe for living for me is that there isn't anything that alcohol can't make worse. You may think that, it, and there, yeah, there's a couple of negatives in there, double negative. Oh boy, my English teacher is going to slaughter me for this one. But if you look, if you look at the the core component of that, um, you know, every time you drink, you're not going to get in trouble. But every time you've been in trouble, you were drinking. Well, if that's you, then you can you need to consider your relationship with alcohol. For me personally, um, yeah. I, I have worked very hard in my sobriety, and I'm living my best life ever. If I have a drink of alcohol, if I go back to this drug, it's all going to crumble. So I need mm-hmm. to I, – I live with that perspective that there isn't anything that alcohol can't make worse. But for the public in general, that's a, that's a good thing to consider because of the social or the economic mm-hmm. or, or just your core unit of your family. Um, is alcohol going to make the situation better or worse? It has the potential to make things a lot worse. So true. Scott, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me in three weeks, Tuesday morning, March 26. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be having a conversation about their latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Grandparents. 101 stories of love, laughs, and lessons across the generations. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed week. Scott, it has been a true pleasure, sir. Thank you again, and have a blessed day. Thank you, Johnny, and congratulations on the success of your your books and your program. And uh, love the potent leadership video, by the way. (laughs) Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. You too. When you're happy, you're more optimistic. So try this. Think of your strengths. Could be kindness, a sense of humor, maybe creativity. Got one in mind? Now think of a new way to use one of those strengths every day this week. Could be anything, big or small, as long as it plays to your strengths. The boost in happiness you'll get will be with you for months. Frost. Opt for optimism. 
Right now at Sprint, you can lease the Samsung Galaxy S9 for just $5 a month with a Sprint Flex lease. Galaxy S9 is an incredible phone. It takes super slow-mo video and instantly translates foreign language signs, menus, maps, and more. Lease your Galaxy S9 for just $5 a month today. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $5 per month after $28 per month credit. Apply within two bills. If you cancel early, remaining balance due. Requires new line and 18-month lease. Excludes tax. Subject to credit. $30 activation fee and restrictions apply.